0: For some of you who were not here last time, we're involved in a study of the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, and we're going to be going verse by verse through this wonderful letter of the Apostle, and we're going to be thrilled, I trust, as we watch this epistle unfold and all of its truths and how it will transform the very life of this church. Colossians chapter 1. Let's read together verses 3 through 8. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the gospel truth, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And He has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Whenever someone wants to communicate a strong belief about something, and whenever they want to communicate it in such a way so as to have you believe it, there are many, many expressions that are commonly used in our day. A few of those might be something like this. I really mean it if there is any doubt in the the hearer's mind, the speaker wants to make sure that the hearer understands that this is really true. You might hear this phrase, I promise you this is true. And if you really want them to believe what you're saying, you might say something like this, this is the absolute truth. Or, this is the honest truth. or if they were really spiritual they would say this is the gospel truth It's amazing how many secular people use that phrase isn't it this is the gospel truth well let me tell you that this morning we're going to study the gospel truth this is the truth that the Apostle Paul wants us to know about at the very beginning of his epistle to the Colossians and it is of little doubt that they, that is the Colossians, would find the gospel truth as the Apostle Paul articulates it right there in Colossians 1.5. Look at it. He says, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, or the gospel truth." And we could say rightly that the Apostle Paul is presenting the benefits or the effects of the gospel truth. If you were here, he might say something like this, I want to tell you something, and it is the gospel truth. What does Paul say about the gospel truth? What insight does he give us about the truth of the gospel? What is the effect of the gospel in the lives of those it touches? Well, that's precisely what Paul wants to tell us about this morning. And he answered that very question in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Now, as he moves through this paragraph, which, by the way, is all one sentence. You think I'm long-winded. The Apostle Paul has the same tendency, so I'm in very, very good company. He's going to describe for us the effects or the benefits of the gospel truth. Now, admittedly, this is a prayer, and it is a prayer of thanksgiving from Paul to the Colossians, and yet in all of Paul's prayers, and I hope my prayers and your prayers as well, it is chock full of gospel truth, the truth about God and His Word, the truth about salvation and man and sin. And this is Paul's prayer, and yet it is absolutely incredible, the truth that is contained therein. In fact, in my study of Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, I found at least eight benefits or eight effects that the gospel truth has for believers. Not just the believers in Colossae, but to us as well. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning and this evening. We're going to talk about the benefits or the effects that the gospel truth has on believers. Here they are. And I'll go over them repeatedly as we preach this morning and this evening, so don't be frustrated that you can't write them all down as I give them to you. I'll give them to you again. Eight benefits of the Gospel. Eight effects of the Gospel truth. One, the Gospel truth elicits prayers of thanksgiving to God. Secondly, the Gospel truth engenders faith in Christ Jesus. Third, the gospel truth expresses love for all the saints. Number four, the gospel truth enlivens the hope of heaven. Number five, the gospel truth establishes the bearing of abundant spiritual fruit. Six, the gospel truth embodies the very grace of God. Seven, the gospel truth encourages faithfulness and service. And lastly, The gospel truth evokes the Holy Spirit's love. You may not realize this, but when we are finished this evening with this portion of Scripture, you will see clearly that the effects of the gospel truth is to elicit thanksgiving, to engender faith, to express and enliven your hope of heaven, to establish you in the bearing of abundant spiritual fruit. It will cause you to marvel at the grace of God. It will encourage your faithfulness and service to Him. And it will evoke in you the love for God and others that can only come from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the truth, the Gospel truth, that is contained in this portion of Scripture. Now, let's look at the number one Gospel truth as Paul portrays it here. Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say about the effects or the benefits of the gospel truth. Number one, the gospel truth elicits prayers of thanksgiving to God. Look with me at verse 3 of Colossians 1. Paul says there very briefly, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul really saying there? Well, to set a little background and context for you, as you know, in the first two verses of this epistle, which we covered last Lord's Day, he is very, very thankful for the Colossians, and he is beginning a section of his epistle to them, and he's going to communicate that thankfulness. But in order for you to understand precisely what he's going to say, he's going to say this, I have not personally ministered to you And I did not personally found the church in Colossae. But my fellow bondservant, my friend in the faith, my companion in the fellowship of the gospel message, Epaphras, has now come and told me of your great faith. He's told me, he's given me a great report about your Christianity, about the truth that has impacted your lives. And as I have understood it from my beloved and fellow bondservant, I am indeed very, very thrilled and excited about what the Lord is doing in your life. And immediately, he begins to tell them about it. He says, we give thanks to God. By the way, this we give thanks to God phrase is a present active indicative. He's saying, I am in a continual of thanksgiving to God for you, the Colossians. I am constantly in my prayers to God thanking Him for you. I am thrilled at what God is doing in your life. And beloved, that is the very first wonderful benefit and effect of the Gospel truth. It is that when you have received Jesus Christ, when you have come to faith in Him, the very first response of your heart is to be utterly thankful to God for His grace. It is to be so thrilled at what God has done in your life. And when you see what God is doing in the lives of others, even indirectly through your ministry, you can give a wonderful thanksgiving to God in your prayers for what God has done in them just as He has done it in you. Now when he says this, we give thanks to God, right off the bat, that's the main verb of verses 3 to 8, and that lets us know something very, very clearly, and that is that this is the main idea of the passage. You could even retitle this, Paul's expression of the gospel truth as he is thankful. Paul is indeed a thankful man. And he's thankful for these Colossians. He is profoundly in gratitude to God for their lives. And the first thing he wants to do is express to them in the first part of this letter how indeed thankful he really is for them and for what the Gospel truth has done in them. This is nothing new, by the way, for the Apostle Paul. In almost every single one of his epistles, He is saying, usually at the beginning of his letter to them, how overwhelmed with thanksgiving and gratitude for those dear believers. He does the same here in Colossians. He says it here in verse 3. He also says it in verse 12. He says that I am continually giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He also says he's thankful for them in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, "...having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were indeed instructed and overflowing with gratitude." Paul is absolutely thankful for them and he's endeavoring to teach them to be thankful as well. Does he not say in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul was a very, very thankful man. He says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, in his instruction to them very practically, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Paul is a very, very thankful man. And you say, why would Paul have been so thankful? Well, just think of what Paul the Apostle himself went through. He was killing Christians. He was doing all he could to persecute the church of God. And he was walking down that Damascus road. And all of a sudden, as a great light shone around him, he was thrown to the ground and God said to him, instead of, you are going to be eternally judged for the wickedness that you have perpetrated on my church, instead, he said, I am the Lord and you will be my servant. Should that elicit thankfulness in Paul's heart? I think so. He was minding his own business. He was killing Christians. He was doing all he could to disrupt the very fellowship for whom Jesus died and Jesus saved him. That indeed, my friends, is something to be thankful for and that is what the gospel truth elicits. Thankfulness and gratefulness to God. This was the characteristic of Paul's life. This was who he was. It was a ministry of encouragement which flowed out of a heart of encouragement and thankfulness to God. Paul says this repeatedly. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1-2, to the Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. He says in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You see, he links up again the gospel truth and being thankful. I'm so profoundly in gratitude to God because of the Word of truth, the Gospel, and what it's done in your life that I continually, as a pattern and characteristic of my Christianity, thankful to God. He was profoundly thankful to the grace of God. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, does Paul, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, he tells them again, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. He was just enraptured with thankfulness to God. He was a man who had tremendous gratitude in his heart because he knew from where he came. And he knew that God had stopped him in his tracks and had given him his mercy and grace when he deserved nothing but vengeance and the retributive justice of God that would send him to an eternal hell. And yet he says over and over and over again, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because he knew that he didn't deserve any mercy and grace from God at all. He only deserved God's wrath and God was giving grace instead. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And he just can't get away from it. He can't just say it in the opening part of his letter. He has to pepper throughout all of his epistles his tremendous thankfulness to God. He is so grateful. He says over and over and over again, I'm so thankful. I'm in such gratitude for what God has done. By the way, all of those passages that I just read to you, the word thanksgiving or giving of thanks is eucharistumen. It's the word we get, Eucharist. And that means to be thankful. When you take the Lord's Supper, when you participate in communion, are you in profound and deep gratitude to God for His grace and His mercy and salvation? You should be. I am. I was driving with Pastor Curtis Thomas up this couple of days ago to a board meeting for a ministry, and I wanted Curtis to go with me and to be a part of this ministry, and so we had about eight hours in the car, and of course it was slow treading and going up there because it was snowing so feverishly outside, and at times we were only going about 30 miles an hour, and we had a lot to talk about, and some of the things we talked about in my own heart elicited over and over and over again thankfulness and gratitude to God for salvation. As we talked about the Lord, as we talked about the faith, as we talked about the things that are the love of the church, which pastors talk about, it just welled up within me over and over and over again, the thankfulness that I have to God. And that's Paul. That's what he says. The gospel truth always elicits prayers of thanksgiving to God. Always happens. Beloved, if you are not thankful, then you must check your Christianity. If you are not profoundly grateful for all that God has done in saving you, in calling you with a holy calling, in giving you grace and mercy and power and strength and wisdom and truth, there's something wrong. Something desperately wrong. Maybe the focus is on yourself or the focus is on others. But we ought to be thankful to God. And as I said, most of the time that Paul gives thanks, it's a thanksgiving to God for what the Gospel has done. Which means Paul isn't most of the time saying, I'm so thankful to you, my church, for all that I've accomplished in your life. Indeed, he's saying, I'm so thankful to God, and I have such gratitude in my heart for what God has done in the truth of the Gospel, which I had nothing to do with. It was totally outside of me, and God used his grace and mercy to produce in you this salvation for which I am greatly thankful. He says this all the time to them, all the time to his church. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, first. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, the very same thing. Verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayer. Paul is just overwhelmed with the Thankfulness and gratitude that only God can give in the gospel truth. He says in Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul is just overwhelmed with the gospel truth. And he can't help himself. He's so thankful. Let me ask you this question. Are you thankful this morning? Are you thankful to God? when you think of the truth of His Word, when you think of the Gospel and what it's done in your own life, are you overwhelmed with gratitude? Do you see God as a gracious and loving and wonderful and merciful God who, instead of giving you His wrath and His judgment and His vengeance, has given you grace and mercy and peace? Does the Gospel truth elicit in you a thanksgiving to God for His indescribable gift? You say, well, I've got a lot of trials in my life. A lot of tests. A lot of problems. A lot of issues. You think Paul himself did not have those self-same issues in his own life? Have you not read some of the very clear texts? For instance, how about 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You think you've gone through a few trials? How about Paul? He says, I have been in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. I think Paul has gone through a lot. And he is saying, in the midst of all of that, I am still thankful. I am incredibly grateful to the grace of God for when I see it in you. I'll tell you one thing. One thing that communicates to me is that Paul did not have his eyes upon himself. He had his eyes on the grace of God and the gospel truth as it was manifested in other people. He was so impacted by the truth of the Gospel and he was so thankful that that was no doubt one of the reasons why the Lord continued to use him to bring thankfulness to others. And in Colossians, go back there, he says that he is so thankful to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives that very, very typical phrase God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his thankfulness was to the Colossians, but even more than that, it was to the God of the Colossians, to the Father of the Colossians, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is very typical. Paul in the opening of his epistles, in Romans fifteen, and Second Corinthians one, in Second Corinthians eleven thirty-one, and Ephesians one verses three and seventeen, in First Peter one three, he says over and over and over again the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say why was that significant? Remember what I said to you last week. This was a situation where there was some tension between both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. And it could have been that the Gentiles themselves were wondering am I really a child of God since I'm not Jewish? Am I really a part of the family of God? I love Christ but is God really my Father as He is the Father of the Jews as is mentioned so many times in the Old Testament? And Paul says, yes, yes. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've experienced the Gospel truth, then you are indeed a member of God's family and He to you is the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anything, Paul is saying to these Gentiles that the Gospel truth has so affected them that God is no longer just the God of the Jews, the Father of the Jews, but He is the Father of the Gentiles as well. And he says, you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And believe me, friends, that is significant. For that word, kurios, is used in the Old Testament thousands of times to refer to one person, God the Father. And now, Paul is proclaiming to the Colossians that Jesus Christ Himself is Lord. He is the affirmation of the Lordship of God in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment, He is the embodiment of the Lord God. And in verse 3, I want you to notice how often he prays to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, praying always for you. Praying always. Now you say, did he really pray always? Is it really legitimate to say that he was always praying? Well, perhaps he was referring to the Jewish practice of praying three times a day. Daniel talks about that. The book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 1, talks about that. Chapter 10, verse 3 of Acts, talks about the Jews praying three times a day. Or perhaps he was talking about the long hours of travel that he had on foot and that as he was walking along the way, he just was effusive in his prayers to God. And he was saying hyperbolically, I am just so thankful, praying always for you and my travel. Or maybe he's referring to the fact that he was a tent maker. And as he was stitching those materials together to make that tent, as he was stitching those things in manual labor, his mind was on other things. His mind was on the love that he had for the Colossians, the love he had for the church. And so he says he's praying always for them. The gospel truth elicits prayers of thanksgiving to God. Number two. Number two. The gospel truth engenders faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel truth engenders faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Stop there. Now, as in many of Paul's epistles, he chooses to emphasize the faith of the Colossians. He says the same thing in Romans one eight. I praise God, and we read it a moment ago, for your faith, you Roman believers. He says in Philemon 5, I praise God for your faith. And what he's trying to emphasize here is that faith is the instrument that God uses to elicit the gospel truth and its reality in the life of every single person who knows God. Faith is the key that God uses to unlock the storehouse of His grace. None of us, are the recipients of God's grace whatsoever unless we put our faith in Christ Jesus. That's the key that opens up the storehouse of God's mercy and grace. And Paul knows that. He knows that that is a tremendous and crucial component of the Gospel truth. And so he says right off the bat, I am praising God and giving thanks to Him because of the key that has unlocked the storehouse of his mercy, and that is your faith. That is your faith. And as I said, Paul has not personally seen the Colossians. And so, he no doubt may have never met most of these believers, if any of them, of these believers. And then he says, Epaphras has told me of your faith, and because I trust him, I am so profoundly grateful about your faith. And that's what the gospel truth does. When someone shared the gospel with you, and when you were convicted of your sin, your response to them when they told you what you must do was to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a tremendous component in Paul's preaching. Did you realize that of the 243 occurrences of the word faith in the New Testament, Paul uses one hundred and forty-two of them. He's always talking about faith. That's one of his key words. Grace and faith. Trusting God. You remember he devotes an entire chapter, does Paul, in Romans 4 to the faith of Abraham It's so important. He's talking continually about faith. He says the same thing about Abraham in Galatians 3. It was because of Abraham's faith That God declared him righteous. Faith is crucial in the gospel truth. James Dunn said, What Paul and Timothy commend here, therefore, is the way in which the Colossians received the message about Christ and committed themselves in trust to the one so proclaimed making Christ the focus and determinant of their lives from then on. In other words, they placed their faith in Christ, and then they lived by faith in the sphere of God's grace. And Paul is saying, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for your faith. I'm so encouraged by your trust in God. And if he were here today, would he say the same thing about us? Would he say the same thing about the Bible church as he has the Colossians? I'm so indeed thankful for your faith. Ever since I heard about your trust, your reliance upon God. Where are you in regard to faith? Trust. Could it be said of you that your faith is real? That it's genuine? Would Paul commend us about our constant and abiding trust and faith. You know, a church is only going to grow, as I said in the Authentic Church Growth series, as you individually place your trust, your reliance upon, your commitment, your entrusting yourself to God. And we will only grow as a church when we have a collective trust that is supreme, that is a commitment of our lives to trusting God by faith. And notice, it's not just a faith in ourselves. It's not just a faith in other people. It's not just a faith in the church. It's not just a faith in the process. It's not just a faith in doing the things that are required. Notice what Paul says in Colossians 1. It is a faith in Christ Jesus. He's the object of our faith. And here, more importantly, it is the sphere of faith that we live in and it is granted to us by Jesus Christ. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? What did he say? He said, it is by what you are saved? And that, that what? That faith and that grace is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that no one should boast. None of us can boast of any faith any trust, any reliance that we have, it's come to us from God Himself. And that's what the Gospel truth does. It engenders faith in Christ. When I think about what God has done in granting me faith, I'm just overwhelmed with His, with his wonder and the, the matchless mercy that He's extended to me. And I trust you are too. That should be the response of every true believer. That should be the response of this church. That should be what we are known for. The Bible church is known because they preach the gospel truth and the gospel truth engenders even more faith in them and more faith in those who join their number. That's what it's all about. That's why we're here. And that's what the gospel truth does. Thirdly, the gospel truth expresses love for all the saints the gospel truth expresses love for all the saints look at the last part of verse 4 we give thanks to god the father of our lord jesus christ praying always for you since we heard of your faith in christ jesus and the love which you have for all the saints And what Paul is saying there is that even though the gospel truth engenders faith in Christ, it always, as a corollary, expresses itself in a love for fellow believers. That's what he's saying. He's saying there is not a person who ever placed his faith in Jesus Christ who did not turn around as a characteristic part of their life and began to express love, tangible love, for fellow believers who have also been affected by the gospel truth. You see, the two go together. You could say it like this. In the midst of my vertical relationship with God, my faith in Christ Jesus, the horizontal relationship is that it will motivate me to love the brethren. To love people. To have a joy unspeakable at serving other believers. And the Apostle Paul, my friends, would never condone the separation of the two. He would never say that you have a faith in Christ Jesus and the vertical is well, but there is no horizontal. That may be weak, it may need to be cultivated, but it does go together. And remember I told you about faith, he uses it, does Paul so many times in his writings, he does the same thing with love. You've heard that very familiar word, agape, the word for love that Paul uses most of the time. He uses it out of 116 times in the New Testament by all the writers, Paul uses it 75 times. He's just effusive in his love, and he's commending love constantly to those to whom he writes. Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy, he says. Romans 13.10 Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You know 1 Corinthians 13 well. We don't have to read it. Love is, love is, love is, love is. It's patient. It's kind. It does not seek its own. It is not arrogant. It is not boastful. Paul is always talking about love. 2 Corinthians 2.4 The love which I have for you and the one I probably love more than all, Galatians 5.13, because it combines love and service, it says, Through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Doesn't Paul say that one of the characteristic marks of the fruit of the Spirit is love? It's the first on the list. And that means it's the most important. It's a love For the brethren. And he goes on, even in Colossians, to say it. Verse eight I've been informed of your love in the Spirit. Chapter two, verse two, having been knit together in love. And Colossians three, fourteen, and beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You want to have real unity in this church? Let's love each other to the degree that we sacrifice our own personal interests. And we reach out for the interests of others. That's love. And it all, by the way, flows out of God's love for us, doesn't it? Does it not say in First John that we love Him? Why? Because He first loved us. Romans 5. God's love was demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He expressed His love for us and we express our love for Him by loving others. That's the tangible expression of love. And by the way, notice it wasn't a discriminate love. It was indiscriminate. They just loved everyone. Notice what it says in Colossians 1. And the love which you have for all the saints. All the saints. It was indiscriminate. Anybody in their number was to be loved. There was no class Christianity Paul was saying, you should love everyone in your number. Everyone, if they have received the gospel truth, should receive your love, your ministry. Someone said it this way, and active concern for one another which did not stop short at self-sacrifice of personal interests, but a deep commitment of compassion and action. Faith and love. Or, in the words of Galatians 5.6, 5.6, it comes very, very clearly to us and it says very succinctly, faith working through love. He says, since we heard of your faith, we know that the corollary to that faith is a love for the brethren. We know it's going to be true of you and we thank God for it. Beloved, do you love one another? you love one another? Does the Gospel truth motivate you to express in your life, a love for all the saints? Or are you discriminant with your love? Do you choose some that you love? Do you choose in some a self-sacrifice of your own personal interests, but others you wouldn't give the time of day? Paul says the Colossians had a love for all the saints. And he may have even meant that even those that they did not know for which they were to ultimately be hospitable, they were to love and minister to. Even people you don't know that come across your path in God's providence. Number four. As we close. The fourth effect of the Gospel. The fourth benefit of the Gospel. Verse 5. It's not just a a listening of thanksgiving to us from God, it isn't just from us a tremendous encouragement to our faith. It isn't just for us an expression of love for all the saints, but it is also the Gospel truth an enlivening of our hope of heaven. The Gospel truth enlivens the very hope we have of heaven. What does Paul mean when he says that? Because of the hope, verse 5, laid up for you in heaven. Well, Paul is saying this. Because of the fact that the gospel truth has been implanted within you, it is the only basis for your faith and love. Notice, he says, you have faith and love because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The basis for their faith and love is, is their expectation that God will reward with heaven. And he says, laid up. That means stored up. And it's in the present tense. Did you know that God, according to this verse, is presently laying up, storing up for you the reward of your life of faith and love for the saints, and that is your present reality which motivates you for further love and further faith. That's what he's saying. And I told you about faith, and I told you about love, and I'll tell you about hope. Of the 53 occurrences in the New Testament of this word hope, 36 of them are from Paul. He cannot be outdone. He says, I... I am telling you that your faith and love is such an encouragement for me and it is because I know you are seeing the reward that you will get in heaven and that motivates you for further faith and further love because of the hope laid up for you. You know what it is? It's God's divine layaway plan. God is laying away presently the fulfillment of what you hope for the conviction of what you do not now see, and it motivates you to faith and love. Both faith and love spring from that hope. Faith and love are in some sense a response to, derived from, or in some way dependent on hope. Boy, when you have hope, nothing can stop you. When you have a confidence in God, a trust in His sovereign plan, it motivates you to express a confidence that God can do anything and that you can serve anyone. Well, I've met people who've had a tremendous amount of hope, and I'll tell you what, it is inviting. I see people who are confident in their relationship with God, and I can't see anything that they can't do. And they're just serving the Lord and they're just loving His Word and they're just ministering to their people. And I'm saying, boy, don't they realize that this Christianity is hard? Don't they realize that we've got some trouble down here? And they're just so heavenly-minded because they're looking for the future for their gratification. They're not looking for the here and now. They're looking for eternity. And it motivates them to have faith and love. And by the way, did you notice faith hope and love the triad of Christian graces it's faith hope and love that's so familiar to Paul he says it in 1 Corinthians 13:13 13, 13. he says it in Romans 5 1 to 5 he says it in Galatians 5 5 and 6 he says it in First Thessalonians 1 1 Thessalonians 5 other New Testament writers Hebrews 10 1 Peter 1 faith hope and love they go together they go together. Beloved, are we experiencing the triad of Christian graces in our fellowship? Do we have faith, hope, and love? Do we have a faith and a love which is based on our hope, our expectation that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him? Does the gospel truth so grip us that our lives are enlivened with the hope of heaven? Does the gospel truth so impact us so as to express a love for all believers who are around us? Does the gospel truth so shape us that it is engendering a greater amount of trust and faith in God daily in our lives? Does the gospel truth so affect us that it elicits within us prayers of thanksgiving to God because we are so profoundly grateful for His mercy and His grace? That's Paul's prayer. And folks, that's just the prayer. He's got four chapters of truth that he wants to tell us. And He can't help Himself. He wants to tell us truth in the Gospel through His prayer. And if all these things are true of us, we might well receive God's commendation just like Paul gave the Colossians and then see great blessing in our fellowship. Let's pray together. Oh, Father... How can you preach a message like that and not be so thankful? How can you not see the the great truth that the Gospel provides that it is such such an enlivening and engendering and expressing and encouraging wonderful works for you? I pray for this dear congregation, all of these loving, faithful, dear people, who continue each and every week to respond with this kind of life. Lord, thank you. Thank you for them. Thank you for the way in which you've brought our family and all of the works of service and love which were provided for us and that which continues even to this day. Thank you for the indiscriminate love which is shared by this fellowship. And yet, Lord, we have so much to do. We have so much to accomplish that when we see where we will be, it will seem as though what we're doing now is so meager in comparison. But let it be so, Lord, so that we might be the church for which You commend and for which Your preacher is so thankful. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.